Hi, I'm Judy Carter, and this is the Power of Purpose podcast, where we explore how to have a purposeful life and how creative people like yourself can make a living doing what you love. And I'm so excited to introduce my guest today. I will be playing the part of my guest You today. will be playing the part of the guest because I am such a fan of Mr. Dylan Brody. Oh, I can't remember where I first saw you, but I, I, here's what happened. You almost killed me. You were telling a story. I think this one had your mother in it. Some of my stories have my mother in them. And... I had an asthma attack. I almost died, I have to tell you, because I was like, I need an inhaler. You had me laughing so much. And your stories have, not they're not only funny, but there's a message we take away from it. And, and I, I wanted, I'm so glad we can have some time together because a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast um, they have stories of their life, um, but they're not as good as your story, and they're not going around. They're not opening for David Sedaris. They're not, you know, on the charts like you are. So first, let's start off by how did you discover your purpose in life as a storyteller? Oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful question. I was a stand-up comic for 15 years. I was a road comic. I was... Uh, a left-leaning political machine gun four-to-one laugh-per-minute ratio comic at the time that genuinely reactionary right-wing comics were becoming very successful. Uh, and people don't know what I'm talking about when I say that. But uh, Sam Kinison, who was a, an acquaintance of mine, I was at the outer circle of his entourage, was ultimately evangelical. I mean, was, he wrote very funny material, but the ideas behind it were all very reactionary. That... Uh, uh, women are responsible for their own abuse, that the poor are responsible for their own poverty. Uh, Andrew, I remember Andrew Dice Clay. Andrew I remember Dice the joke. Wait, 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 wait. What do 30 million murdered women have in common? What? They don't f***ing listen. There you that go. Was, are you, th was, these are the kind of jokes you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Andrew Dice Clay was getting on Saturday Night Live with his vulgar nursery rhymes and his, his casual homophobia. Uh, there's a guy named Tim Allen you may be aware of who uh, was all over the country doing these sort of uh, squeaky clean, Disney clean kind of routines about how women are shrill nags and men are uncontrollable grunting pig beasts, in exchange for which he, he got you know two consecutive, very successful primetime television shows about how misogyny is never funny. That's not how they pitched it. That's you know my review. <laughs> that um, wasn't the pitch. That wasn't the pitch, no. Uh, but... Uh, I did not realize because I was stoned all the time. I did not realize that I was just doing the wrong politics for the era. Um, and I wouldn't have Wait, changed what anyway. What year is this? What year are we talking I about? I started doing comedy in 81 when I was 17. Mm -hmm. um, got in at the Improv in New York just before I turned 18. Um, and then I moved to LA and was part of that crowd and doing the touring starting in 86 or so. 85, 86. 86, I guess. Uh, so there was another, you know, 10 years of me doing that. Um, when I, uh, in 98, I quit smoking pot and bought cufflinks. Um, 
I <laughs> wait, pot and cufflinks. I I'm I trying to hear the connection. Here. Well, when I started uh, <laughs> before I quit smoking pot, I started studying martial arts. I was looking for the, the marijuana had stopped curing my my depression, and I was in therapy, and I started doing martial arts, and. Uh, and as I was getting ready to test for my first black belt, I, I quit smoking pot uh, entirely and began to be able to hold a longer thought than 15-second one-liners and began to reinvent myself as a storyteller. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I didn't know who I was as a comic. I came off the road. I started writing more and performing less and then I found a radio station that wanted to to do some stuff with me and I started doing pieces for them and people started wanting those recordings so I started selling CDs out of my house uh, and then one week a radio station in New York ran one of my stories and I sold 75 CDs that day and I said oh I've got I might be onto something and also I need a much better CD burner and then um, we're going to have to explain to some of the millennials listening to this what a CD is. They know what a CD <laughs> is. They haven't forgotten that yet. Um, but y you know, it, it, after that, things started to roll. Once I figured out what I was doing, things started to roll because of the experience I had as a comic and as an actor. I had a a readiness to take the stage and perform convincingly and comfortably, and. I was ready to put in the work finally to to really do good a good job. Here's here's a thing. Um when I was a child, my dad was one of the first people to teach film as literature at the college level. So every year, every term at Skidmore College, I would get the full course because he would bring the films home to screen against our wall the night before he showed them to his kids so that he could make his notes. So every term started with uh, one of the silent comedies and then one of the silent melodramas. And then the next week it would be, you know, one of the screwball comedies of the, the 20s or 30s, uh, one of the Fred and Ginger movies. And he would move on through the years until by the end of the term we were doing auteurs and, and the, the European movement of the time. And... At one point, I saw Buster Keaton, and I loved all the comedies. There was always a Marx Brothers every year, and it, the, the movies changed each term, so it was a different set. I saw Buster Keaton, and I said, I think I could do that. And my father said, yeah, the mark of a great artist is that they make it look effortless. And mm. that made a huge impression on me, but I was too young to understand the nuance. So growing up... I genuinely believed that I was not great at something unless it was effortless. And as a comic, in addition to the pot helping with the constant chronic depression, it was a way for me to prove that what I was doing wasn't taking any work, right? I'm just partying all the time. I'm just out having a great time. This is all easy for me, man. A lot of people feel that, you know, feel that way. Uh, civilians, I call them. They'll look at a comic who's so funny and they assume that they're just up there riffing. And that's why you go to so many open mics and you see people without really, material, without with no material as an excuse. They're just high and they're just riffing. And you and I know well, it, it, the genius is making it look effortless. I was I doing more that. work than I admitted to. 
mm-hmm. and still not believing that I was any good at it because it took effort. Only when I got wow. sober and began to really grow up into myself, uh, which I did later than most, than many people do, certainly than successful people do, uh, I realized I wanted to be so good at this that I didn't care how much work it took. And I started to really put in the effort to make sure my stories were crafted, my performances were crafted, I was using every tool in the toolbox to make the work good. And people started to ask me how I did it and why it was so easy for me. Oh, and bingo. And I knew I was on and, it. And you knew you were on it. Um, so, oh, gosh. So well. it, was like, it was after doing stand-up and then rediscovering myself and reinventing myself that I found my so way to start. In talk- answer to your question, yes. yes. <laughs> well, I want to talk about a point in your story. Anything. Uh, well, here you are discovering you're not hitting it. You know, you're not... You're not um, it's not going right. The, the comics around you that are, are are succeeding, making a lot of money, are from a totally different kind of thinking than you're doing. Um, and how did you sustain yourself? Because a lot of people listening on this call are in between things, have like kind of failed at something, haven't got as far as they wanted to get. Nobody and, has gotten as far as they want to get. Right. I, <laughs> very good advice. And, and know that, everybody, if, if you're listening. Um, yeah, at 100%. Um, but I want to know how you sustained yourself to continue forward in the creative field, right? How did you sustain yourself at that point? How did you not give up? How did you still know this was your purpose? It's just you had to shift form a bit. Like, how does that happen? Well, first of all, let me say there were a lot of nights lying in bed thinking, can I get a day job? Is there something I could do to save me? Is there, how wrong have I gotten life? Um, I, I There was a lot of wishing I knew how to give up and wishing I had a fallback plan of some sort because there was a lot of poverty and a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. Do you have a family at this time, or you? Oh yeah, you know? I have a family. Uh, I have a family, and I am fond of my parents, mm. who just won't die. Um, <laughs> I used to feel they were living through my accomplishments. Now I feel they're living through my inheritance. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, I, so so, but you still held on to. No, this is your purpose. How did you well, know this was? First of all, I had always wanted to do stand-up. When I was a kid, I always wanted to do stand-up. And even though what I do now isn't exactly stand-up, there's a time in history when what I do now would have been stand-up. Um, the long-form storytelling that I'm doing now is not so different from what Bill Cosby was doing in his early work. It's not so different from some of what Bob Newhart did. There are ways in which it's not that different from what Lord Buckley did. Uh, when when he was working, some of it. Um, so there's a and Ruth Draper for crying out loud and and um, there's there's a a history for storytelling in long form that goes back before the modern tradition, the current format of the four to one laugh per minute ratio. 
that's required by television. Um, and to which we have all become so accustomed that when one doesn't I think it's meet up to it, five now. I think it it's might every be. 10 seconds. It might be. Um, but it's, those of you who don't understand what we're talking about, it's that um, it, when you tell a story, uh, very often you're laying a lot of pipe until you get to the laugh. Um, that right? sounds dirty, <laughs> doesn't it? Laying <laughs> pipe. That's gotta that be a, That's gotta be a sexual metaphor. Well, you, you've, you've heard a comic, you know, doing yes. a long setup. You yeah. go, oh man. He's My father used to say, pipe. "Boy, there's a lot of machinery going into that punchline." Yeah. Dylan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, and that the current trend to getting a laugh every ten seconds is set it up. And then punch, 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 every, punch, Every punch. word out of your mouth. As a stand-up comic in the modern world, everything you say is setup or punchline. And right. ideally, one setup will yield two to five punchlines. Right. So that you're constantly keeping the audience laughing. And it's not like, then this happened and this happened and, and you're building up to something, right? Exactly. Um, okay. Because when I wrote my book, Stand Up, um, uh, the Comedy Bible, it was like, don't use stories. You're going to look soft on it when you're doing the stand-up stage. Yeah. Uh, and I disagree with that. Um, but uh, I understand why you would say it. I do sometimes work still stand-up stages. It's rare. Uh, but when I do, I just string together my funniest stories uh, and make it fit the format. Yeah. Um, and I have some stories that are well within the, the four to one, five to one laugh per minute ratio. And what I'll frequently do is start with one of those. And then once the audience is used to me, start to move into stuff that's just a little bit headier, a little bit more difficult to follow, Ooh. and then close with something strong, something uh, strong on laughs as well. Wow. Wow. Um, that is. <laughs> Wow. So you really are so thought out on how to manipulate an audience into you, well, right? Well, I always have been. Even when I was a stand-up, I was hyper aware of this. Um, stand-up comedy is an inherently manipulative art. When it's straight-ahead stand-up, it's taking an audience by surprise with the same trick every 10 or 15 seconds. And it's the same trick. But every time they fall for it, the, the, their brains just follow the first track and then are surprised by the second track and then they laugh. And it's, a, it's this weird physiological game of intellectual bullying that comics play uh, effortlessly, apparently, to the audience. Um, when I was doing stand-up, I knew, even then, that the ideas I was presenting were counter to what was going on in the zeitgeist at the time. And I knew that I would have to be funnier, sharper, wittier than the comics who were getting away with f jokes. If I wanted to do 12 minutes on how homophobia was still an accepted form of bigotry to an audience that was usually comfortable laughing at gays just for being gay. Um, so I had to always change the mood in the room before I could begin speaking. There's a, a piece of video of me doing a, an appearance on A&E's Comedy on the Road in 94, where you can see me. I had really honed this thing down. I still smoked at the time. Um, and 
I would go on stage and I would pull an ashtray out of my pocket and drop it on the stool, pull a cigarette pack out, light a cigarette, and the audience would start to laugh with nervousness before I began to speak. And what I wanted to let them know right up front is, you're in my house. I have all the time in the world. If anyone is nervous about getting to the first laugh, it's you guys, because I know what I'm doing. Wow. Now that takes a lot of confidence. I remember a night where Larry Miller and uh, Jerry Seinfeld of the improv, and they were bragging about how long they could go without getting a laugh, without trying to get a laugh. Yeah. Right? Like, cause, because it, it messes with that basic premise. The audience is there. You're going to be funny. Well, let's, let's try not to be funny. See what it happens. It wasn't even about <laughs> trying not to be funny. Yeah. It was about establishing dominance. Okay. Um, there was a comic named Uncle Dirty. I don't know oh, if you remember sure him. Oh, sure, I remember him. Um, uh-huh. When I got in at the improv in New York, I used to watch him work. And he would go on stage, and there would be this long beat where he was just checking him out. And then he would say, you're checking me out. I'm checking you out. And it, it was incredibly powerful to just reveal the subtext of that moment and incredibly authentic to the yes moment. yes um and i took from that the the power of silence at that opening moment now uh as a comic at certainly at the time when i was doing straight ahead stand-up all the time there was a lot of people you know rushing up on stage and getting them how are you doing and are you ready to party let's go hey folks let's and it was all this fake hyped up energy in lieu of wit um and i'm a big fan of the genuine article so i wanted to make sure they were playing on the same court i was before i moved and i still do expect a great deal of my audience I don't play to the lowest common denominator. I don't find the easiest possible laugh. I find the best. I'll tell you, I have a joke. A lot of comics don't understand what I'm talking about when I say this. I have a joke that I realized was sexist. And I replaced it with a joke that I think is better, but I know is not as funny. And a lot of comics don't understand how a joke can be better, but not as funny. Because if you're guided by the need to get a laugh, those ideas are incompatible. So we're talking about being absolutely authentic to your ethics, your principle, and your belief. And what is your purpose up there? You're not a, like, I'll just make people laugh for for anything, any kind of joke. That's right. right. And, and and that's why I think where especially women, they, they go into, you know, BJ jokes right off the bat. Cause hey, if the, that's what you're genuinely interested in, <laughs> if that's really what you care about, do those jokes and do them authentically. But if not, don't do them because they're what's funny. I want to get to storytelling. Anything you like. I'm sorry. I've no. derailed us. You can't take me anywhere. No, I'll just ramble on about my own thoughts. <laughs> no. Uh, yes. Th- this what? is what is your question? No, I, 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 I really. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking every time you start. Every time I, I start, don't know what you're. I, I'm not going <laughs> to. Were we talking about the power of silence? Should we try Sorry, that? Go. <laughs> um, no, don't don't apologize. I I really want to understand the world of storytelling, and it's very clear to me 
how ever since you were a kid, you had a sense that you were going to be a solo performer on stage, and and you were doing stand-up. You, you found it, it just wasn't, form wasn't serving you as well. You adapted it, you adapted it. But when I've seen you perform, um, you're telling deeply personal stories. Yes. Um, I can't, I, I I'm trying to remember some of them because I've seen you so many times, and every time I've seen you, you've had a different story. Um, I've seen you mostly at storytelling venues around Los Angeles. Can you tell us just a little bit about, first of all, an overview of the storytelling scene, and and what is it? What is going on? I have to tell you that I did see, I don't know if you know him, Mike Bictaglia. He's a comic who now has... Birbiglia? Say it again. Mike Birbiglia. Thank you. He's wonderful. I love him. Yes. I, I resent s- him deeply, but I, I love him. <laughs> you resent- he was playing at a large venue, about a 1,500-seat Yeah, house. that's one of the reasons I resent him. I can understand <laughs> that. And But I watched his format, and the for- now here's a guy who was a stand-up and turned to storytelling. He's telling a story about his wife's decision to have a baby and what happened but what happened was he starts the story and he goes so i was sitting on the couch and then he would go off and do about a 10 minute riff on buying a couch right which was stand up yep back to the conversation on the couch right and then go well i had five reasons why i didn't want to have a kid he'd riff off for it was about a half hour but it was like but you're, the whole time, it's compelling because you want to know, what happened? Yeah. What's going to happen? Did you have the baby? Are you going to have a baby? I can't believe you'd have a baby with this kind of attitude about being a father. But there's this element in storytelling of what's going to happen. Yes. Right? So tell me a bit about the storytelling. All I know is, you know, I bought tickets. I went to see him. And it was sold out. It was amazing. But tell me about the opportunity for storytelling um, and what it's all about right now. Give me a little well, overview of First it. of all, Mike Birbiglia is an anomaly. Um, uh, Mike Birbiglia has uh, what we can only refer to as the exceptionally rare, lucrative career as a storyteller. Um, and he's wonderful. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, the... There's, there are two things to discuss when we're talking about the storytelling world right now. There is the desire for people to be known, which has led to the, the storytelling rooms where I work up new material and where I see people who go in week after week not seeking a career as storytellers, just seeking to be known by a group of people. And it's beautiful. Um, and it's that tradition that led to the moth, uh, on, uh, now on NPR, but formerly just a stage show, where uh, people come in and, and essentially put their names in a hat and some get to tell stories. And they're not professionals. And at many of these uh, rooms where I'll play, it's a group of people, who, none of whom are professional writers or one or two of whom are professional writers and most of whom just want to tell their stories. Um, and those exist all over L.A., all over New York, I imagine in all the major urban centers now because we have lost the small community structure of America 
in which people used to know each other. Uh, I grew up in a small town where everybody knew everyone else's story. We all knew that Mr. and Mrs. McKerney had that son who had come home from the war and wasn't right, and then they got him lobotomized, and now he stumbles around town. We knew everything that went on in that house. And we all knew about the Aherns and their daughter who had had a uh, uh, misshapen child who died in, in childbirth, and uh, their whole family was living together now in this one house. And like it was all these little... And it was an Ethan Frome book. You know, we all knew each other. Um, we all and we all knew what one another's tragedies and one another's triumphs and now nobody knows anybody so there's this craving to be heard to be known to speak and, one's and tale and facebook doesn't solve that no uh no because facebook is pretense uh it's it's refined image of what one wants people to see as opposed to what feels like an authentic interaction so, so these stories, I just want to uh, yes. just get this clear. So there's stories um, telling venues such as The Moth, um, Sit and Spin. S well, um, Sit and Spin is a higher end thing. Sit and Spin is a uh, professional writers for the most part reading uh, crafted tales. The Moth is very specifically not scripted. It is, you know, people do work up their stories, but it's not, you're not reading. Um when I talk about these places, I'm talking about uh, The Moth. I'm talking about uh, Beverly Mickens Story Salon. Um, I'm talking about... Uh, they're essentially open mics for storytellers. Okay. Then the next tier up is is uh, Sit and Spin. And uh, th there's one out in Malibu that's run by... Uh, You'll edit this later. I don't remember the woman's name, so yes, please don't. Yes, I just did it, did yeah, it too. And... Buxy. Yeah, Anne Buxy. There's a, a thing out in Malibu uh, run by Anne Buxy that's a... Uh, Hope it hasn't burned down. Yeah, me too. Um, where it's not, you're not reading, but the, she expects professionalism from her Yes, and she gets, it was about 150 yeah. people there and she pays. Yeah. Um, uh, but there, that opportunity to be paid for storytelling for, you know, a showcase evening is very rare. That doesn't really exist so much. Um, and then at the high end, you've got Mike Birbiglia, you've got uh, David Sedaris, who's really on book tour all the time, you know, tw once or twice a year, um, who's reading from his new book and reading new pieces to refine them in front of an audience and make sure they have all the laughs in them. Um, and with David and with me, uh, the, the storytelling becomes uh, an outlet among others for the writing. Um, you know, I have stories that I do live that have been published in American Bystander. I have, uh, I have specials out on, on uh, rooftopcomedy.com and at Next Up Comedy and on Amazon Prime and so on where there's a little bit of a trickle in of income. I have albums out with stand-up records of storytelling where there's a little bit of a trickle of income. And then it's the writing gigs that come as a result of that, that make the living that supports the real work. I see. Now, have you put your um, stories together in a book, some of them, as a memoir? Oh, you're going to make me weep. Um, yes. Uh, no. Why? Why? Yes, why? Do no. you need a Kleenex? Why? Um, I, um, I have several books out, uh, but uh, none 
right now that is really a collection of my stories. I found a wonderful new agent three years ago, two years ago, who encouraged me to put together this collection of stories. Uh, I, I, I found a family that I was writing that I know very well, and I realized it, it, it is my version of uh, Salinger's Glass family. I just, I know these people. And he, this agent encouraged me to write the full book of stories. And I wrote it, and it is the most beautiful thing I've ever created, and we could not sell it. Um, and he said, you know what? You have some great stories about your dogs. Dog stories are, dog books are big. Let's just put together a whole book of dog stories where you put a lab on the front and a blue background behind me, sell a million copies in airports. And uh, I worked on it for a year, building out from the the dog stories I had and it's gorgeous and I he just read it recently and said I don't know that I can sell this there are problems with it I can't um so now I I have have to to just tell you now I have to go back to the drawing board on that book and it's just it's very frustrating I I I wrote a book and my first book was rejected by 59 agents 59 (laughs) and then finally got one and I don't know. I never gave up on it. I <laughs> got one, well, and then Oprah the liked it. Um, <laughs> so there you go. I mean, it, it's all—it's so much about timing. But I want to talk. That we don't have a lot of time left. But I really want to uh, talk about. I'm 55. I don't like to think that I don't have a lot of time left. <laughs> we all live under the crushing urgency of mortality. Yes. Yes, we do. So <laughs> let's get to it. I want to know how a little bit of how you pick the stories that you're going to write. And any suggestions? Because, you know, a lot of people, when they go to write a story, they go to write their whole life story. And and it's always like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And I see that you will pick, oh, gosh, a minutia, a a point in time. I I specifically recall a phone conversation with your mother. Yep. Um, There are two of those. I have two phone calls with my mother well, stories. Well, how do you pick what you're going to write about? What's How do you write? Do you talk at first? Do you write it down? Tell me a little bit about it, your creative process. It varies from one to another. Um, my wife has pointed out that as events are taking place, I am rewriting them for comedic or dramatic effect. And then the moment they're over, the, act, the, the facts have been replaced in my memory by the the construct um so it starts off based on something always always starts based on something there was a a a local storyteller whose name i will not give you who wanted to go to lunch with me to find out how i do what i do he genuinely thought that we could have lunch and i would explain to him how i do what i do and then he would be able to do it and uh we talked a while and i couldn't understand what he was asking me and finally, I said, what, what are you working? I said, well, there's this, there was a series of events, and I can tell there was a point to them, but I can't figure out what it was. And your stories, you always seem to know exactly what the point was of what happened. And I said, yeah, that's because I lie. Oh, I, my God, really? I, I take from events the thing that I want to be able to learn from them and rewrite them to better express that idea so that... By telling the story uh, in as funny, as interesting, as poignant, as authentic a way as I can, I can allow the audience to come to the conclusion 
that I wish I had been taught by the events. Mm. Um, I will give you a, a real example. And this is where, this is for me where the power of story hearing comes in and more importantly, the power of writing one's own story comes in. Um, and then if you want, we can talk about what my purpose is in all of this. Cause I really, I actually do have an underlying secret purpose in all of it. Um, I w was talking to somebody, a brilliant sort of coach, uh, named Giovanni. I don't remember her last name offhand. That's sad. She's wonderful. She does, uh, drumming as a way of finding your own true self, uh, the percussion. Um, and she said, what, what are you working on these days? And I said, I'm trying to deal with my problems with money. I'm all, I have all sorts of hangups about money. And she said, we all do. What story are you telling yourself about your relationship to money? And I said, shut up, go away. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Because I knew what she was talking about. There was a story that I had told every therapist, every financial advisor, every girlfriend, uh, anybody who I thought might be in any way affected by my relationship to money or might be able to help me with my relationship to money. I told the same story about an event that happened when I was a child. And I, I'm because I know we're short on time, I won't tell you the full story. But it was an event where my parents, in an attempt to do good parenting, screwed up my relationship with money. And I told everyone the story. And I went home that night and I added a visit from a grandparent to the story who comes and straightens it all out and and gives the real thing that I should have learned from the event as opposed to what my parents told me. And as soon as I added this second conversation to the story, my world changed. And suddenly what I had learned as a child was different. And I was able to rewrite the code and start to earn a living. Wow. So that's, let's get some takeaways from that because that's powerful. That's, yeah, that's that's blown me away. Um, and because that takes this conversation to a level that I wasn't expecting. Well, let's today. talk about the purpose. Yes, because wait, I just OK, just give me one second. Standing by. OK, first of all, your parents told you some kind of story that you believed that you were not able to make money or. But my parents told me uh all right, I'll go okay, into okay. it. I'll go into yeah, it. Yeah, because we have okay. to. Because we have okay. to decipher this whole okay. thing. Um, a friend and I saw an ad on Saturday morning television for something called the Skidoo Junior. We lived in upstate New York, where there was heavy snow, and he had a. His parents lived in a farmhouse on what used to be a farm, so they had rolling hills that were covered in snow. We saw this ad for a thing called a Skidoo Junior. We wanted one, hundred and fifty dollars. Came in a big box with a picture of kids having fun. We went to our parents. We said, can we get one of these? They said, we'll tell you what, because they wanted to teach us to save money. You save up half the money, we'll pay the other half. We did the math. We realized that if we saved all our Hanukkah money and all our birthday money, we would be able to afford a Skidoo Junior when we were 37. <laughs> so we wrote a letter to his grandfather who worked at a bubblegum factory in New Jersey. And his grandfather sent us a box of... 
exotic bubblegum, stuff you could not get at Larman's Newsroom in Schuylerville, New York. It was, you know, uh, sour apple bubblegum and giant bazookas that, you know, you could unfold the cartoon and make it a poster for your wall. It was just a, this stuff you could not get locally. We took it into school and we made up prices and we sold this one for 75 cents and that one for a dollar. And on the weekend, we went back to our parents and we said, we got our $75. How are you guys doing? And they said, where did you get $75? And we proudly told them. And his parents were furious because he was taking advantage of his grandfather's largesse. And my parents were furious because you do not profit from a gift. Now, at the time, I was a kid, and I was the smartest kid in my class, and I wanted to be a comic, and I was already writing, and my parents told me in no uncertain terms and with rage, you do not profit from a gift. Whoa. And we had to give back as much of the money as we could, and then my parents tried to figure out how to give us jobs and chores around the house to make up the money so that we could, by the time we had it, it was spring, we no longer wanted it, we got a a go-kart instead that was awful. In any case, this stayed with me my whole life. I was fighting myself because all I had to work with was these interesting gifts, but I'm not supposed to profit from them. What I should have taken, though, was the message that came three weeks later when I went for dinner at my friend's house and his grandfather was in town. And his grandfather grinned at him across the table and said, how'd you guys make out with all that candy I sent you? And his mother said, you going to tell them or tell them or should I? And she had the tension of a mother who is deeply disappointed in her son. And my friend said to his grandfather, with all the sadness of a son who is afraid he will disappoint his grandfather, we tried to sell it at school. And his grandfather said, what do you mean tried to sell it? How hard can it be to sell candy to children? (laughs) And my friend said, well, we had to give the money back because you don't take advantage of your grandfather's generosity, and I'm sorry. And his grandfather turned to his daughter, my friend's mother, with the sadness of a man who has entirely failed to raise his children correctly, and said, oh, for Christ's sake, you think I sent your kid $1,700 worth of candy just to rot his teeth? At which point I realized that some gifts are intended to be profited from, and I really needed to start raising my rates. Wow. Now... That is fiction. Now, and, and, but it and gets some people, to the you know what some point. people would say about that, right? No. Well, everything about it has to be all true. No, no, because you get to the truth. The whole point of writing is to get to the truth, not to reveal the facts. And if you're a journalist, you need the facts. If you're a writer, you need the truth. Well, I, I've got to do my recap here because this is amazing. Because what you're talking about is writing from a painful event that taught you how to be a certain way that really wasn't working for you. You write the story out, and then you write what you wish had happened the message from your grandfather you actually write into your life 
a support system. Right? Yes. Now, <laughs> that you didn't have that. Here's the underlying purpose of everything I do. I earlier said, uh, it may or may not have been in the recording period, that we all live under the, the crushing urgency of mortality. It's gotten bigger than that. I believe we are as a species at an inflection point. And now the race is on between humanity's capacity for self-destruction and humanity's capacity for adaptation and evolution. And there is much that has been done that the stories we tell ourselves as a culture are self-destructive. They all end with apocalypse. They all end with uh, a death to the species because that's what we have as individuals and that's all we could once imagine as a life cycle for a species. And I want us, rather than living at the end of a, a civilization dedicated to war, to be living at the very beginning of a civilization dedicated to peace. In order to get there, we need to flip on epigenetic triggers that have been systematically turned off by society and culture and an educational system and a, a religious system and an oppressive political and economic system in order to keep us from evolving and adapting. My job with my stories is to make sure that every story I tell, every story I write, every time I appear before people, at least... I create the environment in which people can turn on the epigenetic triggers that have been turned off so that writers are more apt to write, so that mathematicians are more apt to do math, so that everybody is beginning to live up to their greatest possible potential in the hope that I can help to save the world. Wow. Wow. Okay. We've been we've been trained. We've been trained <laughs> no, totally not to get... think grand thoughts because it'll appear grandiose. And and the time is so perfect for this because as you spoke about this in the beginning of this, um, you were talking about a time where homophobia was funny, and look at us now. It's back to being a riot, and we have um, um, a president controlling the narrative. And I find myself falling into the fear all around me. What you said that to me was so evolutionary and wonderful was, and I never really thought about it before, because I felt when you wrote a story about yourself, it has to be true. And what you said here is that, you know, you, you take what you want to learn and, and you, the object of the story is not just the facts, but the object of the story is to get to the truth. And the sentiment of the story and what actually happened, what incited the story is absolutely true. The character of your father is absolutely true, but, but you wanted to not write the story as you as victim. I, I never want to be victim and I never want to be hero. In every story I tell, I am... Healed. I am observer. I am involved. Uh, I am finding and learning and growing and changing. Uh, but nobody, I mean, even, even the Hitler, even the, even the Trump, 
even the 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 worst of the worst. I mean, you know, we elected Lex Luthor to be president, but even there, he is victim, he is hero, he is human. And the more we can explore that and keep exploring toward the best in ourselves, the greater the chance that we as, a, as individuals can add up to a decent society. Well, I would love for the, uh, my listeners to find out where they can hear some of your stories, see you something. Can f- look up Dylan Brody, dylanbrody.com. Look me up on YouTube. And if you're interested in my, my new breathing exercises, go to activevoiceproductions.com slash breathe. Breathe is all lowercase letters. Uh, because uh, in recent teaching of, of writing, I found that all my students just kept saying, okay, but these meditations you end with, can you just, can you g- give me those? So I have now put those into recorded form and I got my, um, my backend uh, web designer to figure out what the least is that we can possibly sell them for to make them available. And oh, that's make it wonderful. And, and do these breathing, because a lot of people are stuck, procrastinated, they start to go into a story, but then they're distracted by the life, myth, by things. The myth that you are telling yourself is that what you need is discipline. That is not correct. The reason you have difficulty writing is that it creates anxiety. The creative process is inherently anxiety-producing. And all of the breathing exercises are designed to relieve the anxiety that causes your mind to wander, that causes you to find other things to do, that if you can find the the sound of your breath and you can return to that, uh, and these exercises will help you do that, you can realign your thinking about your writing so that it does not create as much anxiety and you're able to put to the page all those overwhelming thoughts that you have. Yay! Well... First of all, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you for having me. And, and you know, I've gotten so much. Just know people that when you see someone doing great work or telling a story or a comic on stage and it looks so effortless, the good ones mean a great deal of work it went into it. It just means they did the homework. And you got to do the homework. And when you get anxious, just know that the creative process is anxiety producing. And go to Active Voice productions.com backslash breathe all lowercase thank you so much dylan thank you so much for having me if you would like to learn more about turning your purpose into a career go to the message where i'll give you free access to my online course click the button in the top banner when you get there if you'd like to learn more about what i'm doing then go to judycarter.com Thanks for listening, and let's find your message and launch your career.